Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Chris Geikema of Compass West Outfitters. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jay. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, today I want to talk about the New Mexico um, big game regulations and the hunts. Uh, the draw is the deadline's coming up here on March 20th. Uh, at 5 p.m., and I know you do a lot of guiding in New Mexico, so I wanted to get you on the podcast uh, to talk about all of the ins and outs of New Mexico hunting. Uh, but before we do that, Chris, uh, I would like to kind of get a brief history on uh, where you grew up, your background, kind of where you started guiding and so forth, and then we'll kind of dive into New Mexico. All right, cool, man. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I've been I've been down here since '97 in New Mexico, but I grew up in Michigan. Kind of cut my teeth on the Great Lakes steelhead and salmon industry, and I moved out to Montana in 1990, I believe, and kind of got into the the guiding game up there. I was working as a chef. That's my my background in college training is culinary arts and. I was working as a chef and a guide in Montana until I moved to New Mexico in 1997. So, Chris, when I first remembered you, um, quote, unquote, on the scene was, I uh, haven't been in years, but I used to fish uh, at the San Juan River in New Mexico before, uh, below Navajo Lake there, uh, the quality waters of the San Juan River. Um, I know you have a vast amount of experience on the San Juan River. Talk a little bit about your guide service there, and I believe you had a lodge, and talk about uh, some of those days back on the San Juan. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, I was living the dream. I came down from Montana to New Mexico. I got out of the cold. I came down and was living in the heart of some of the best mule deer country uh, in the in the lower 48 and and you know, the, the, the guiding thing, it was just right place, right time. I've been really lucky in my life that I've had some really good mentors in the business, and I was steered into kind of doing my own thing in 97 and came down here. And in 2001, we had an opportunity to buy a small little lodge and fly shop and restaurant and everything on the San Juan, and... and uh, we were able to do that. It was just an awesome deal. We were running a ton of guides, and, you know, I was fishing 200, 250 days a year and scouting and hunting mule deer another, you know, 75 to 100. And it just kind so, of... what was the name of your fly fishing guide service and lodge? Well, when I was in Montana, I started a small business called Resolution Guide Service. And Resolution Guide Service came to New Mexico with me in 1997. And in 2001, I believe it was, we purchased Rainbow Lodge on the San Juan River. And we operated those together until 2007. And really in late 2006... Hunting and fishing was turning into just an endless season, and my wife and I kind of were trying to decide which way to go, and in order to free up a little more personal time and with a pending offer on someone wanting to buy the 
fly fishing property, we decided to shove both feet into the water, so to speak, on full-time elk hunting instead of doing it as kind of a sideline business with elk and mule deer. So in 2007, we sold the lodge, and we're really blessed in the sense that we were able to step into the outfitting game in a, in a, in a good, positive situation with a great background in the area, and just the rest has kind of been great. You know, I mean, we've just been been rocking and rolling since. So where do you guys live now? I still live in Aztec. I am only about seven miles from the San Juan, and... The reason that I'm still really kind of here is I've got my, my oldest son is in high school now and my, my, my daughter's young, she's only six, but, you know, we've just kind of, you know, we've got kind of loose roots here and we're comfortable. I hate all the driving I do with, you know, my primary hunt areas being down south, but, you know, it's just kind of been a part of my life for the last 10 years and. You know, and up until my son's out of high school, I don't really see a whole lot changing. Yeah. So I, I would like to ask you about the San Juan River now compared to when you were guiding on it um, as far as how has the river changed? How is it the same? You know, has the quality of fishing gotten better? Is it, is it worse? Is it the same? Um, talk a little bit about that fishery and what's going on uh, with it uh, right now, current state. Man, I, I stumbled into the San Juan River. In 1997, when I came down here, Van Beecham was actually kind of my target outfitter to work for over in Taos. And I met with him on the Green River below Fontenelle Reservoir uh, Dam. And he kind of gave me a little tryout up there and talked to me a great deal about the Culebra and some of the private waters that he had out of the, the, the Taos area. And I, I was all in for working with Van, and I swung into the San Juan River. And I can still, like, in my head, man, I can still see, like, parking at the Lower Flats parking lot for my first experience putting on my neoprene booties and my and my my boots and, and getting on my vest and grabbing my rod and taking off. And some guys, I could hear them kind of mumbling about getting cold and some other stuff. But, you know, I was a tough kid just down here from Montana. It's 95 degrees in the parking lot at Lower Flats. I think I fished for about an hour before I had to go back and get my waders. But <laughs> I stumbled into the river at just like the probably one of the peaks in that 97, 98 window of, of, like, the popularity of the wand and the healthiness of the fish. The, the amazing thing for me is I actually kind of have been on the San Juan River through a pretty interesting up-and-down cycle. The river has really come full circle back to where it was in 1997. I mean, I go fishing on the river now, and I'm just astounded at the health and the size of the fish. And the big, big change on the wand that's been so cool is I remember the big thing for me with clients was to try to get a rainbow and a brown. You know, it was cool if you could get each client a rainbow and a brown trout on a given day float in the river. And now there's days I catch as many browns or more browns than I do rainbows. Really? 
What, why, why is that, Chris? You know, I don't really know. I mean, the state plants all the rainbows. You know, the, the whirling disease is in the river, and it's, it's not really a self-sustaining fishery. But the brown trout are self-sustained, and they've not been really planted. You know, the, the legends on the river that I always heard where the majority of the brown trout that got into the San Juan probably came down the animus from Colorado and then worked their way up. Because there's definitely a little bit, uh, you know, there's like two distinctive spot patterns on the fish. And it, it, it's got to be some sort of genetic coating. There's a very silver, big, sparse spotted fish. And then, then, then there's your typical real buttery, beautiful browns. And, you know, it, like just yesterday or something on Instagram, I saw a post from some of my buddies down at Soren Eagle Lodge with another slob brown that looks like he's probably 10 pounds. I mean, the river somehow, the browns have just adapted themselves to that frigid water and that midge fishery that it is, and they've really just moved in there and started to take over. Are you seeing browns um, all the way up? I know I haven't fished it in years, but I used to fish it quite often, and it was fairly rare to catch browns much above the Texas hole. I mean, you would here and there, um, but have the browns, I mean, are they prolific all the way up and down through the river? They really are. You know, you get much above cable hole. I catch a few, but not very many. But the browns, I catch a lot of browns in, like, ESPN and, and the upper main channel for sure and some of those those stretches of water but you know the last couple summers i'll kind of target that ant fall and and you know i get to kind of cherry pick my days living next to the river so if a buddy texts me or something and says the betas are pouring off the river and it's a cloudy day i'll run up and fish for a while but that espn there's a lot of really big browns in that country now, and it's it's really neat to see. I mean, they're just such a cool fish. So, Chris, um, you transitioned when you sold the lodge in 2007 to focusing full-time uh, on hunting, primarily uh, elk, but you've branched out and done all sorts of mule deer and other animals as well. Um, Tell us about the units that you specifically like to guide in um, and give us kind of a breakdown of your guiding operation for big game there. You know, I mean, my home country up here for unit, for the mule deer, you know, unit 2C is really, you know, my heart lives down there. Um, it, it's, it's just such an unbelievable resource for the state um 2b you know and a little tiny bit in 2a although i've really cut back in 2a the last five years as the deer population seems to be following the statewide trend of of declining but the the 2c and 2b are really the two mainstays and really the only hunts in new mexico that i like to push clients towards for mule deer you know 2b has taken a pretty hard turn in my opinion and i know i talk more clients out of hunting with us than into hunting with me in 2b because i i tell them the truth you know it's a 150 to 160 hunt and unless you get weather in colorado and but in the same sense you'll never kill 200 inch deer unless you're hunting where they are 
and regardless of the present quality and average deer and 2B, there still are 200-inch deer and 2B every year, and there will be for a while. And, and 2B and 2C are really the main areas that we stay. 2C is, is, is mule deer nirvana. You know, it's impossible to draw, but it's my only three mule deer choices in the state of New Mexico every year. I apply for rifle, muzzleloader, and archery. I can't seem to ever pull a tag, but, you know, it's it's still a hunt that we average in the, you know, in the high 180s and really into the 190s with most clients on that hunt. It looks like I'm, I'm looking at the Go Hunt Insider uh, draw odds here. Uh, Go Hunt Insider is obviously a sponsor of this podcast, and it looks like that November 9th through November 13th uh, 2C, the late rifle hunt, uh, there's only two tags, 840 applicants. It's only a 28% chance, um, and that's in the guided pool. Uh, but you still like to see and think it's the highest quality uh, mule deer hunt in the state of New Mexico? Oh, without question. I, I mean, there's always going to be a few big deer killed, and I hate to say by accident, but there's always going to be some big deer killed Incidentally, in other units, because New Mexico just has such a good line of genetics going back, but, I mean, 2C is where it's at. You know, if, if hopefully the state will make a few changes in the coming years, in my opinion, to kind of keep things protected, but, you know, they, they did bump up the rifle tags this year to 30. I mean, that's not really going to help anybody that much. It, maybe it'll bump your draw odds up to one in 350 instead of one in 400. But, you know, it's it's yeah. one of those hunts that if you can draw that tag, you know, you're, you're in for the hunt of a lifetime without question. Talk about the um, January 1st through the 15th 2C late archery hunt. Uh, in, in the guided pool, it's 2.4% draw, and, and there's five tags, 264 applicants. Um, you know, what's the status of the rut uh, at that point, and how difficult is that hunt? So the, the, the mule deer hunting with a bow in January here can be really good some years and tough other years. It pretty much comes down to snowpack. The hard thing about northern high desert country is it might be, five below zero in the morning when you wake up and camp, but by noon it's 40. So there's a constant freeze and thaw with the snow. So unless you get really deep on the north-facing slopes, it's that crunchy snow that kills that hunt. It's still a great hunt with an extremely high ratio of shot for bucks in the mid-180s and up. It's just not your traditional archery mule deer hunt. The, the deer typically peak rut somewhere between like the 8th and the 15th of December, give or take. So typically what you see on those January bow hunts is either a little leftover rut from late cycle does, or what I really think happens is you really catch that second rut. And the hard thing on that is those big bucks, especially the big ones that come off the hickoria to breed those does, those big bucks are just roaming, looking for that hot doe here and there. And 
you might see that big buck one time and get one shot at him, and unless that doe is really hot, he's going to be in that group and out of that group the next day. But it's as yeah. far as New Mexico goes, it's without question the best archery hunt in the state. Okay. Uh, talk a little bit about your elk. I know you really love elk. What, what units do you like for elk? Where do you operate your guide service? You know, I'll work at, in a varying degree around almost the entire state. You know, we're permitted statewide in pretty much all districts, all units. I'm lucky in the sense that we have quite a bit of private ground, so we can stay busy with private ground guaranteed landowner tag hunts. I'm not stuck in a situation where I need to look for that easy draw or that more marginal opportunity hunt in order to keep myself or guides busy. So we really focus on a lot of different areas, but really anymore, 34 and 36 are our mainstay. I do still do hunts in 16A and 16D just because we've got so many clients that have been hunting with us for so many years. You know, when I really first started hunting in New Mexico, I was mostly hunting in 16A and D, and then in about 2005, I started to venture over into 34, and by 2007, when we sold the lodge, you know, 34 was really my base camp, and everything else was just kind of fun bonus hunts. Tell me about Unit 34. The Sacramento's has one of the highest populations in the state outside of Chama. It has a great bull-to-cow ratio. The genetics are unbelievable. You know, a lot of the places that I hunt in New Mexico, you see decent thirds. You know, I, 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 drew, a, I drew a tag in Nevada years ago, and... and it was a great hunt and a great unit, but the unit had no thirds. Like, every bull you found had 8 or 10-inch thirds. You know, it's not uncommon for us in Unit 34 on a good moisture year to kill bulls with 20-plus-inch thirds. And, you know, when you start out your first three horns, you know as well as I, you know, if you're almost in the 20s or in the 20s on your first three points, you're, you're in pretty good shape for a, a slammer bull. And... 34 has just got an unbelievable genetic in it, and it's got a, a, a pretty good age class in it still. You know, it's, it's very deserty, very, very moisture dependent, but year in and year out, it produces more 350 bulls for us than, than any other unit in the state. You know what's interesting? Again, looking at the Go Hunt Insider <clears throat> draws, they break it down into guided and then the non-resident. And if you look at Unit 34 itself, uh, the guided portion for the first hunt, if you go with, with an outfitter, and we'll talk about that in a second, takes your odds from it's 9.3% draw for that archery first hunt. Um, and then if you go in the, in the unguided non-resident, that's 3.9%. Uh, so that's, you know, two and a half, three times better draw odds going with an outfitter. Uh, conversely, if you look at the guided draw for the second hunt, which those dates are the 15th through the 24th, it's a 5.7% draw. 
If you go in the guided pool, and if you go in the non-resident unguided pool, it's 2.4. So you double your odds by applying with an outfitter. Talk to the listeners a little bit about how, uh, and I've had other outfitters from New Mexico on the line, but if, if 34 is your unit, uh, you know, that, well, let me back up. If, if you're applying in New Mexico and looking at unit 34 or some of these other units, Chris, how does it work with you for guys to apply with you and be able to take advantage of bettering their odds? Well, what we do, Jay, is we offer a full customer service, a courtesy service where we'll actually do, if clients are interested, we'll do the full application for them. New Mexico requires, it's kind of a disclosure contract. In order to be in the guided pool where you're eligible for 10% of the total tags, you have to be in a written contract with an outfitter. So once I have a contract from a client, we give them the option of either doing their own application, which for some guys is part of the fun. You know, I mean, I sit there and go back and forth with the mouse when I'm looking at my Arizona and Nevada draws and my New Mexico draws. It's, it's part of the hunt, so to speak, for me to play that game. Some guys are just busy and don't have the time or don't need to learn how another state works. As a courtesy, my wife or I, we do your applications for free. We don't take deposits. We don't want anything. We just want guys to apply for super premium hunts. And if they draw, you know, we can exceed their expectations at every corner. The 10% the, the draw odds for outfitters in New Mexico is an incredible privilege that we have here as outfitters, and it's a really special deal and a great way to keep that, that high amount of revenue in the state. Chris, um, when you talk specifically about 34, there's also Unit 36, and talk about both of their proximity there to the Mescalero Indian Reservation and, you know, the compare and contrast, because a lot of times you hear 34 and 36 in the same sentence. Um, which one is better and talk a little bit about why it's better and why the quality hunting, either either the quality of hunting or quality of bulls or both is better? So, I mean, so 34 and 36, 34 sits on the south end of the Mescalero Indian Reservation and, 30, and as well as kind of a little bit on the east and west. 36 sits on the north side as well as the east and west a little bit. Um, the, the, the big thing with 34, 34 has a huge expanse of, you can be hunting in the Aspens and Ponderosas at 9,000 or 8,000 feet, and in a 30-minute drive, you're literally sweating in the desert in the P&J country. I think 34 carries a slightly higher density of elk, but it does also have a much larger area. 36 is a phenomenal hunt as well. I don't think the average bulls are as big. I tell clients all the time the reality of 34 and 36 is there 290 to 320 hunts, but you're hunting in an area where 320 to 350 plus is completely possible on any given day. You know, 36, since the big fires that happened a few years ago, 
I think the, the overall population and age class of that 36 unit has been knocked back a little bit, but it still carries an incredibly high opportunity for, you know, the three, for the 290 to 300, 310 kind of bull. And there's still 350 bulls in there for sure. When you look at uh, 34 and 36 um, on the muzzleloader hunt, I'm looking here, it looks like uh, there's the 34 is October 12th through the, through the 16th, but it looks like unit 36 is October 5th through the 9th from a bugling perspective. And, you know, do those dates on 36 make, uh, you know, that 36 hunt just a smidge better or are they pretty much, uh, the same, you know, starting in the unit 34 on October 12th? You know, they're fairly comparable. The 36 muzzleloader hunt definitely puts you more in that ruddy wheelhouse. 34, 34 actually has a youth and mobility impaired rifle hunt on the 5th of October. So 34 actually has a rifle hunt in front of the muzzleloader hunt. In the youth and mobility impaired hunts in 34 are unbelievable, but the 36... Muzzleloader hunt is a great, great hunt. You know, the, the bulls are full-on bugling. It's the first firearm season of the year. The big thing that people need to be aware of when they're looking at 36 is it's a relatively smaller unit with, you know, not a ton of tags, but enough tags. And since that burn, the people get a little bit more concentrated in there, I think. And I think that has a little effect on that muzzleloader hunt's success, in my opinion. Okay. Uh, let's talk about some of the other units that you routinely guide in. Or, or would you say 34 and 36 is, you know, 50% of your business and then you do another 50% throughout the state? Or is the 34-36, you know, 75% of your business? Yeah, and, you know, I mean... Thirty-four and thirty-six probably represent any more probably seventy-five percent of what we do. I, I do some hunters in you know sixteen A and sixteen D, but I also work with some other outfitters over there that I really respect a great deal. And the, the honest answer to that, Jay, is a lot of times if I if let's say you put in with me this year in the outfitter pool and you drew sixteen A second archery. If I didn't have a first archery hunter draw and I didn't have any rifle hunter draws, I'd have a conversation with you pretty straight up about the fact that, hey, look, you drew the second hunt. It's not once in a lifetime, but it's almost once in a lifetime draw odds. We're going to get a guide over there. He's going to do his best. But I've also got a couple of other buddies over there that are home-based in, in 16A. And yeah. I would maybe put those guys in touch with one of those outfitters, you know, and, and say, hey, look, you know, talk with him. He's got a bunch of other hunters, and I can do what's called a contract reassignment. And if it's in the benefit of the client's interest to put him with a, an outfitter that's full-time that year in 16A, then I'm going to push the client that direction. Because those tags are so special, and that's part of why, we really just focus anymore on 16 AD, 34, and 36 because, you know, I want to just be in the best areas where when my clients come into camp, I, I know what they're in for. 
Compare and contrast uh, from your perspective 16A and 16D. So 16D is thicker, brushier, country. Um, 16A has, you know, in the beginning years, I hunted different than I do now. You know, I've, I've been very blessed in the hunters that I've been around. I've, I've been really lucky in surrounding myself with some of the best guides and outfitters and mentors in the industry that are incredible hunters, and it's really changed how I hunt. When I first started hunting in 16A, I was all about the ponderosas and the rolling hills and the Enbar grasslands, and, you know, that was kind of the sort of country up there in that, in that ponderosa stuff that really, it encompassed what I envisioned when I went elk hunting, so it was naturally where I was drawn to. But as I've gotten older and hunted more, I've really turned around to where that sparser population, PJ country, and much more open glass and stock approach is way more what I do. And, and for that, 16A to me lends itself a little bit better to my style of hunting than 16D, which is, I think, a little thicker. Chris, talk about, I get a lot of questions, um, guys putting in, you know, whether it be DIY or guided. Talk about, is there any other units, you know, you hear about 34, 36, you obviously hear about 16A and 16D, you hear about 15, you hear about 13 and 17 and, you know, 12, but are there any units out there that you would say, hey, I consider these, you know, pretty kind of sleeper units that kind of fly under the radar, but, you know, either, oh, it's really good bugling or maybe, you know, oh, it's, it's you know, got some quality to it as far as size. Um, you know, are there any, you know, obscure or sleeper units out there that you're like, hey, man, you need to look at, you know, XYZ unit, it's a pretty darn good unit, even for just someone that's going DIY. You know, the, the way, when I'm talking to a client, because I get a lot of guys that are, are, are trying to make the decision between DIY and, and, and going guided, and, and they're fishing information, and, and I kind of realize and see what they're doing, and, and I'm as op upfront and honest as I can be, I mean, and, and, the reality of that is, is I think that the way I break it up when I talk to guys is New Mexico has like kind of three hunts. It has your premium hunts, which are all the stuff that you just hit the nail on the head with, you know. I, and then New Mexico, after your premium hunts, it has what I call opportunity hunts. And the cool thing about New Mexico is it does have a handful of units that I would consider to be opportunity hunts, and I consider an opportunity hunt to be an area with healthy population and obtainable tags. And then your third group is just kind of junk. You know, like uh, as an example, in Unit 7, which is up here by my house, every year I get a guy that calls me because he sees on my website that I guide mule deer in, in, in Unit 7. He'll call me, and he drew an elk tag in seven. Unit seven has a really sparse population. It has a pretty poor genetics. It has a very low age class. It's mostly super young raghorn bulls. 
it's an easy draw hunt for a guy that wants a really tough hunt, in my opinion. Now, I like to hunt, you know, so like obviously the units in the 50s um, is some of that stuff, you know, are some of those opportunity hunts. You know, I'm going to say like 52, 53, 51, up in those countries, up there, you have a high elk population, you have somewhat drawable tags, you have the potential of killing a 300-inch bull, for sure, and, you know, I, those are neat little, I don't want to say sleeper, because they're not really sleeper units anymore, because they're getting harder to heck, than, heck to draw, too, but... You know, for the DIY guy that's looking at a more affordable, more achievable New Mexico, you know, 50, 51, 52, you know, that country up there, those are great third choices. Same with Unit 2. You know, Unit 2 here by my house has a, has a booming elk population, actually to the point where this year the state isolated the San Juan herd as... Uh, uh, its own individual herd, and we're trying to decide how to better manage the population of elk, which is booming here. Now, Unit 2 is not a traditional elk hunt. It is what I consider to be a great opportunity hunt because it has a very high success rate for us on our guided hunters, but it's a weird oil and gas country, sagebrush, you know, a lot of butt time in the truck driving around, and then the neat thing in Unit 2 that I really enjoy is it's real sandy country. So you can kind of go back old school and jump tracks, and you can spend all day tracking out bulls until you come on where they're bedded or until you screw up and jump them by mistake. And, and that's a really fun, unique way to hunt elk. And, you know, that's one of my favorite opportunity hunts in New Mexico. What about the, um, you know, any of the later season firearm hunts? Uh, you know, you, you obviously hear about all of the prime units, but is there one particular unit like firearm, whether it be muzzleloader or rifle, that you're like, man, you got to check out this unit. It's it's pretty darn good. You know, New Mexico has a few late season hunts. Um, and, and, and part of this, I have to tread a little lightly because obviously it's sort of my general opinion on these sort of things. And there's certain things I'm a lot more biased against and for, but you know, like unit five B as a rifle hunt. Now the dates this year are atrocious. I can't even believe the state did it to tell you the truth, but there's a rifle hunt in five B that is like December 20. 21 to 25. So if you want to go hunting on Christmas Day, uh, especially <laughs> if you're single and don't have kids, uh, it might be a pretty good draw this year. Now, that hunt was really good when they first opened it and there were 25 tags. It was a really fun hunt. It's a migratory hunt where some decent bulls are coming off the Hickoria. It's a 260 to 340 hunt um, on that late season. Now, you couldn't pay me money to go into 5B early season, but that December hunt is really pretty neat, and there are somewhat affordable landowner tags in there. 
Um, you know, obviously the late muzzleloader stuff in 15, 13, and 17 are all great opportunity hunts. They're tough, but with modern weaponry, you know, that's opened up a whole other can of worms for those poor elk. I mean, you know, I we shoot, I have some camp guns. I have a, a Johnson long-range muzzleloader and one of the best of the West muzzleloaders, and and we let clients use those if they're lucky enough to draw 15, 13, and 17 if they don't want to buy a $5,000 muzzleloader. And with the new gear, those really have become some great opportunity hunts at big bulls in the wintering ground if you're willing to really get off the beaten path and, and burn some boot leather. You mentioned landowner tags. Um, do you have access and availability of landowner tags? And if anybody out there is listening, um, is, is that a route that you do in your guide service? Yeah, I mean, I can I can help guys out with almost anywhere. Um, thir obviously, 34, I have quite a few landowner tags on a given year. Same with 36. Um, I do have access to landowner tags throughout other areas. And then we actually also, we're getting up close to about 200,000 acres of private leased land in 34 and 36 as well. And I have quite a few ranch-only tags on that, uh, which are, well, I mean, we might as well go down that road with, you know, New Mexico is one of the few states that offers landowner tag vouchers. So you can purchase what are called unit-wide tags where if I own 100 acres and I get a tag from the state and I sign up for the unit-wide program, I have to grant access to all hunters with elk tags to my land, but I can sell that tag and you can buy it and you can hunt anywhere in the unit in exchange. It's kind of like a, a bypass to the draw. If you decide, hey, look, I want to go archery hunting in 34, I don't like 5% draw odds, I just want a landowner tag, you can buy a unit-wide landowner tag and you can hunt anywhere you like. Now, we also have private ranches where you have ranch-only tags, where those, those ranches are not open to the general public. There's no access outside of what we control. And those tags are issued, and they're only valid on the deeded acres for um, the ranches that, that you have access to. Chris, I want to take just a quick second here to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com Gear Shop. My friend Cody Nelson of 20-plus years is the optics manager. I call him the glassing guru. If you guys have any optical needs at all, you can reach out to him at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2. That will ring Cody directly. Uh, you can also email him at optics at GoHunt.com. Now, he's promised me, and routinely I get messages from listeners every day, that Cody has taken care of them and gave them a great deal. Uh, so reach out to Cody if you have any uh, glassing or glassing techniques or uh, spotting scope. Any questions you have, reach out to Cody if you want to buy optics. Uh, GoHunt Gear Shop, GoHunt.com Gear Shop is the best place to get them. Call Cody. I also want to thank the Go Hunt Insider. Uh, as you heard me talking earlier, I was throwing out some odds. If you look on 
the Go Hunt Insider. I think it's the best Western hunting resource for draw odds and harvest statistics as well as strategy articles, uh, application articles for these upcoming draw events in these different states. Uh, but if you go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott, uh, you're going to automatically get a $50 gift certificate there to Go Hunt Gear Shop. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. I also want to thank Kuyu. That's K-U-I-U.com, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. Uh, we've got CanyonCoolers.com based right out of Flagstaff, Arizona. If you use the JScott19 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. PhoneScope.com, that's the digiscoping device that I take all the photos and videos on my web, on my uh, Instagram page. Uh, if you use the JScott19 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. And then onxmaps.com. If you use the JScott19 promo code, you're going to get a 20% discount. Guys, you can see the different um, promo codes, which is JScott19, and the percentage of discount that you get. It's linked in the show notes of this podcast. I want to thank the sponsors for supporting this podcast. Uh, Chris, there's other animals uh, in the state of New Mexico, they've got exotics, they've got oryx, they've got Barbary sheep, ibex. Um, do you get into guiding any of those animals as well? Yeah, we've guided. We guide pretty much all that, all the above. I mean, I've got guides that that really, really specialize in specific species as well. Especially when you start getting into the exotic stuff, you know, the 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 hunting on the white sands missile base is a great, a great opportunity here in the state of New Mexico. Um, I actually wrote an article, and typically I'll post it uh, on a few forums every year about the time of draws come out, giving guys a little helpful t hints here and there on the oryx hunting. Um, you know, it's such a cool opportunity, such a neat species, and the populations really come back to the point where they increase tags this year and expanded opportunities with more hunts. Um, Ibex, you know, obviously that they're a wonderful uh, uh, experience that you get to have here and a treasure for the state as far as the hunting opportunity. And it's, a, it's an animal that we actually hunt quite a bit as well. Um, bighorn sheep, we do a fair amount of bighorn sheep when possible. Obviously, the New Mexico tags are some of the hardest in the country to draw. Um, I do, however, we also guide quite a bit for bighorns in Colorado. I actually probably do five to one Colorado sheep versus New Mexico. And then we do some Audad stuff. With some of the changes in the seasons for Audad this year, I think we're going to expand that program a little bit. And actually, just last week, we were lucky enough to pick up six new ranches in southern New Mexico that have a pretty solid Barbary sheep population on them. And we also have a, a huge ranch in Texas that we're focusing on really, truly big trophy audit on. Tell me about uh, your, we can branch here from New Mexico real fast. Tell me about your sheep hunting in Colorado and the opportunities there. You know, I work as a, a managing uh, partner for uh, an outfitter that has a couple of different permits in Colorado. He's very busy with elk and mule deer and doesn't have the expertise in his staff 
to really handle the sheep hunting or the time. I have one guide that is pretty much solely devoted to only guiding sheep hunting for me in Colorado. That's, he will not guide elk or deer or antelope or anything anywhere else. So it's a unique opportunity there. You know, we do a little bit of stuff in the Sandy de Cristos through that partnership where we manage his hunts for him. Um, and then we also uh, have permits in S33, which is kind of, oh, up above Silverton, Colorado. Uh, we work on temporary permits in S21, which is kind of around Uray, Ridgeway, Telluride, over into Silverton as well. Um, and then we do some stuff in S31, which is south of Pagosa. Okay. Uh, that's all really good stuff. So let's talk a little bit about your outlook for this season uh, with the moisture conditions and everything that you know right now. What are you anticipating for New Mexico for this year? You know, I think like a lot of the parts of Arizona, man, I mean, I think there's a lot of optimism out there for everybody. I know that the northern part of the state, like the Unit 2 and, and, and on across the northern tier of New Mexico, we've been really blessed, a lot like Arizona. You know, I mean, I've probably had 30, 40 inches of snow here at my house in Aztec, as well as probably an inch and a half of rain this winter already. And, I mean, we're getting close to probably half the total moisture I would expect in a given year, much less this early. So I would think that like unit 2B, 2C, unit 2 elk, and, and unit, you know, Chama and on across the state in the northern tier, I think we're in really good shape. The, the Gila's been getting a, a good amount of moisture as well. Southeast in 34 and 36, we had a couple of really good early storms. Um, that brought some much-needed moisture in, especially in 36. We got upwards of two, three feet of snow in there uh, towards the end of December. It's been a little drier down there the last month, but I'm really cautiously optimistic for, for, for those areas this year as well because we had good late moisture last year and grass grew in and what moisture we have had is going to green stuff up nice this spring. We just... You know, I, I tell my clients every year, you know, as soon as the draw is done, pray for rain because you need that one good solid rainstorm to turn everything green and right around the time they shed their antlers and, boy, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always great to have um, wetter cycles and a wet year as a hunter to be looking, you know, forward to what's coming. Let me ask you this question. It, you know, we were talking about the San Juan earlier, and do you find when we have, you know, wetter cycles, um, you know, as far as the drought last year, I mean, does it affect uh, the fishing around the San Juan at all um, with the water, you know, being controlled by the dam? You know, are the hatches more prolific? Is there anything, you know, that'll, that either it's better on a dry year or better on a wet year? Do you notice anything with the, you know, the way the water the fish react or, or insect the hatches or anything? You know, I think on the, on the negative side, it's better. And the reason I say that on a drought year, I'm sorry. The reason I say that is this is 
the San Juan River is used to control the lower San Juan going into Lake Powell where there's the endangered squawfish and razorback suckers or chubs. And as a result, on really wet years where the animus is flowing really high and the, the, the cubic feet per second flow stays at the required level from the animus, the San Juan actually suffers a little bit and they hold back more water in the dam and they use the San Juan to control that level of water flowing into Powell to protect those endangered species. So on a drier year, you're actually going to see the San Juan flowing more at that 6, 7, 8, up to 15 or 2,000 cubic feet per second all summer. In the short term, it's great because at, I mean, at 2,000 CFS, that river is a whole new beast. It's unbelievable fishing. It triples the surface area for fishing. All the side channels are full of fish. It's a really good flow for that river. But the longevity on Navajo Reservoir, unless you have really wet years, is tough because they're dropping that reservoir like crazy. I think that the higher your flows, it does alter the hatches in the sense that you know, at 250 to 500 cubic feet per second, your water temperature is going to increase as you go down that river. So the closer you get to the takeout or the bait water, the warmer that water temperature is going to get at 250 or 500, and therefore you have more caddis, more betas, more crane flies, all that sort of stuff starting to hatch. When you start to look at 2,000 cubic feet per second, you have a really extended period of cold water from the dam downstream. You know, your water temperature at Texas Hole might be one or two degrees cooler at 2,000 CFS than it's going to be at 500. And that's going to put that river right where its wheelhouse is at just a midge factory. You know, and you're going to go from throwing, you know, maybe a 22 or a 24 betas pattern to, you know, pretty much just throw in size, you know, 26 and 24 midges all day, unless you catch the ant fall in July, of course, and then you can throw big old giant ugly black stuff. I've hit that carpenter ant hatch a couple times after little rainstorms and such, and I've, I've never really seen anything quite like it. I mean, you want to talk about like fish boiling, talk about like how the whole surface of the water can just explode when that really hits if you get it just right. Oh, uh, it's, it, it, you know, I, I put it right there with being able to kill a doll sheep or, or a 200-inch a, a mule deer. It's like a life-altering event as a fly fisherman to hit the ant fall on the San Juan. They're, I mean, to walk into that river with that quality of fish and spend all day throwing, like, you know, size 10 and 12 and even size 8 giant foam black ant patterns, and you almost can't not catch fish because the, the first heavy monsoon of the season soaks the ground, and as soon as it gets hot, if you get a hot sunny day the next day, those carpenter ants, the females come out and migrate, and they're great big bodied things with little tiny wings, and they just can't fly very far. And within a matter of hours, the entire surface of the river can almost be just covered in ants. And it, like, every fish in the river is on the surface for, like, three days after that event. So 
That's primarily because the monsoon rains hit usually in early July. What do you typically look for? I heard you say look for a big, you know, big monsoon rain, but then you want that to be followed up with heat and sunshine right after that, correct? Yeah, I mean, the best case scenario is you get like a late afternoon, evening shower, and then the next day it's just a scorcher, hot, humid, sunny, and those ants come out, you know, and I mean, I'll, I've spoiled my kid. I think my kid kind of thinks that somehow that's how trout fishing really is because I'll walk out on my front step here and one morning after a heavy rain and there'll be ants all over my yard. And it's like, oh, time to go. <laughs> Hook up the drift boat, call in sick to school and go. Or yeah, in July, he's out of school, but you would just go and fish and 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 have a good time you know it's 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 an unbelievable experience and it typically when we used to own the lodge i used to have better logs on all that sort of stuff but if memory serves me right i would say sometime between like the 4th and 12th of july is kind of that magic window where it typically happens that's awesome i've i've seen it before there um and it was just unreal fish were just i mean all you had to do is get your black ant out in the water column somewhere and you were going to get a hit. It was, it was amazing. I'm going to let you go here, but I, I, I want to ask you um, biggest fish, whether it be brown or rainbow, that you've caught or with clients on the San Juan. The biggest fish, the biggest rainbow that I ever landed on the San Juan with a client was in Cable Hole. Um, and it was 29 and a half inches and oh we tried like heck to squeak that, that tape measure out. 30. <laughs> and, yeah, I tried, man. You know, I, I pinched its tail like I was fishing a bass tournament and I mean, we did everything we could to try to get 30, but I was fishing with a guy named Harlan and, and I'd fished with him a great deal and he was a weight fishing only guy and. You know, it was just a great day. You know, we sighted that fish up feeding in the water column and ran through a bunch of bugs and got him. Uh, the second biggest fish I ever did land on the San Juan was, he was only 28 inches. I can't remember his girth measurement off the top of my head, but he was a brown trout that probably went close to 11 pounds. Wow. That's incredible. Um that's incredible. Chris, it's been an awesome conversation. I want to give you a chance to let people know how they can reach out, how they can follow you, how they can reach out to you, and how they can see uh, more about what you do. Hey, no problem. Thanks, man. You know, we're at uh, the best way to find us is compasswestoutfitters.com. And if you're interested in the uh, outfitter application, the contract is actually in our forms page. There's a link right on the front page right now. You can also find us on Instagram, which is a lot of times anymore the best way to really see what's going on with the bulls that we get, and that's at Compass West Outfitters. And then, obviously, on Facebook, either on Compass West Outfitters or Chris Geikema, and you know, all those are, are great avenues to kind of look back and, and check out some of our past history here in New Mexico. Well, buddy, it's been an awesome conversation. Uh, appreciate all that you do and the success that you guys have. It's been fun watching you guys uh, in, in, you know, over the last 
bunch of years, um, you know, just knocking down great animals, and it looks like your clients have great time. So thanks for coming on and sharing some uh, wisdom with us about New Mexico, and I encourage the listeners to reach out to Chris and uh, give him a chat, and uh, thanks for spending time with us. Okay, buddy? Man, no problem, man. You have a great day. All right. God bless.